welcome to The Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. As usual, you are with Mike. And with Ian. Yeah. And we are rolling into 2024 with a look back at post-captain. So some of you may be joining us after Blue at the Mizzen. Some of you may have just come from the original Master and Commander, our shortened version, perhaps some of you from the slower version of Master and Commander, episodes 87 through 99. So we're going to, as always, be careful about spoilers. And for those of you who have kind of done this entire circumnavigation with us, we'll be making some general references to other books, but we'll do it without giving anything important away. However you're coming to this episode, we're glad you're here. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Welcome, welcome. It's it's a great treat, Mike. You and I have just come off the back of our reading of Blue at the Mizzen and getting to the end of the last complete book of the canon. And it was really striking to pick up post-captain and look at what kind of what kind of situation our characters are in way back now, almost at the beginning of the canon. By the way, since we're still talking about Blue at the Miz and the last thing chronologically that we read, thank you to one of our YouTube uh, listeners, Chana Sundown, great screen name, Chana Sundown, wrote us this really great comment on our YouTube channel after pointing out all the potential tensions and conflicts that could have arisen in Blue at the Miz, but didn't. For example, tensions between the surprises and the American crew that they encountered or tensions among the midshipmen. Channa wrote this really great analysis. Talking here about the midshipmen, for example, they behave maturely without insecurity or jealousy. We know O'Brien's life will end in the middle of the next book. He or she is talking about uh, 21 there. But whatever he did or didn't know, as he wrote Blue at the Mizzen, he is winding down the series, setting us up, and letting us down a bit, surprising us with a very warm and peaceful pleasure. And Chana, thank you. I've said thank you already on the YouTube channel. It's such a great analysis, such a great turn of phrase as well, surprising us with warm and peaceful pleasure. And the more I thought about that idea, first of all, the more I noticed it as a really true pattern in Blue at the Mizzen. There was the rivalry between Aubrey and Lindsay, for example, and you might remember how that kind of grew up and where it ended up. Maybe you could say that in Blue at the Mizzen, Patrick O'Brien was gently letting the air out of lots of the tension that had been in the books so that we'd be left just with Jack and Stephen's friendship. And by the way, Jack and Stephen's friendship is material enough to keep writing another 20 books about. That's for another day. So here we go, Mike. We'd got to the end of the Blue at the Mizzen with tension and conflict gradually being kind of eased out of the writing. One thing that O'Brien was adding in, if you remember Blue at the Mizzen, right at the end was death. We were getting lots of deaths of secondary characters. And maybe if you think about O'Brien's life situation as he was writing Blue at the Mizzen, you can kind of see where that came from. So thank you, Jana Sundown, for the comment. It's interesting then that we're now winding our O'Brien clock all the way back to book number two, back to a time when O'Brien was obviously still looking for ways to generate and add tension and conflict and jealousy and insecurity, all those things that were being resolved away at the end of Blue at the Mizzen. And of course, this friendship that the whole of the rest of the canon is about, this friendship between Stephen and Jack, still being formed. So Mike, take us back a little bit further then, help us reflect maybe on where things were in Master and Commander, friendship-wise and situation-wise. Thanks, Ian. Yeah, it 
as you mentioned, sort of looking back at these sources of tension, jealousy, and insecurity in Master and Commander, well, you know, O'Brien had already deployed Jack's professional ambition and his predilection for challenging naval authority. So we're seeing, you know, wow, okay, this is going to be an ongoing thing, it looks like. We had Stephen's unresolved inner conflict over his past association with Irish republicanism, alongside with James Dillon's conflicted national loyalty and his jealousy towards Aubrey. We had Jack's tendency to arouse jealousy in cuckolded husbands and even (laughs) a little bit of unrequited love towards Aubrey from Marshall, the master on the Sophie. So we had all this going on. And and we all know that O'Brien was a deep admirer of Jane Austen and uh, sort of the mainspring of her writing. I I think a lot of people would say that it has to do with sexual jealousy, romantic entanglement, a fair amount of family and social intrigue, uh, class differences. It's fair to say that sexual and social tension, you know, especially with respect to the principal characters, hadn't really come to the surface yet in Master and Commander. Uh, And, of course, we really hadn't had a female character with much to say or do besides being a bit of a foil for Jack's libido. And all all respect in the world to Molly Hart. Love Molly Hart. I I remember thinking about Molly's carrying on with another officer, which which probably impacted Jack somewhat and his reaction to that. More on that later. But without trampling over too much of what's to come in post-captain, Let's stick a pin in the idea of female characters. I remember when we talked about Master and Commander of the movie, even though it really wasn't about the book. Again, you had to say, female characters, where are they? But so we'll stick a pin in that. We'll come back to that here with Post Captain. And let's talk about the prospects for the Jack and Stephen friendship. Now, we remember that it had an inauspicious beginning here, a near duel right. in chapter one of Master and Commander. So two very unlike people, a lot of tension there. But since then, Jack and Stephen have mostly got along just fine. Really, there's no beef between them outside of their philosophical wranglings over authority and identity and liberty. Loved yeah. those. <laughs> Come to the wrong ship for anarchy, brother. Well, we... Uh, had learned that they're very different characters with divergent motivations and interest. So what were they going to do for 20 books? Just play Baccarini and chat about Enlightenment philosophy? Nah, I don't nah, think so. I can't say and that. Of course, yeah. So far, they've mostly been situated either on board a ship or in a harbor town in the Mediterranean. So there's definitely room for the exploration of new places New settings. Oh, as as we so often say on the lover's hole, many more pins to stick in that. Meaning we'll come back to that later here. Oh, great. Yeah, thank you. I'm looking forward to seeing where he's going to go with, with the friendship and with the settings, as you mentioned, Mike. Can we just talk for a second then about the life circumstances for Patrick O'Brien? Because we've gone from blue at the mizzen where he was at the end of his life or if you're reading serially with us, we've gone from Master and Commander when he had just been commissioned to write the one book as kind of an experiment. We're now a little further on from that. We're in 1970. He's still in his mid to late 50s. Master and Commander had come out initially at the behest of the American publisher Lippincott. He 
Apparently, he'd started writing it with just that one contract in his hand. He was, according to Dean King's book, apparently surprised by how much he enjoyed writing it. And the fact that he left the book open-ended, left Master and Commander open-ended, maybe was as much for his own sake and for his own pleasure as to fulfill any idea of a promise to a publisher. Now, it seems that some people among his literary helpers knew or at least hoped ahead of time that he had ideas for a second book. While he already had the deal for one book with the American publisher, he had no deal in place when he wrote the book with a British publisher. And Collins, some people at Collins were trying to get a deal in place for him because he found some early fans there. Uh, an editor by the name of Richard Ollard, who would go on to be O'Brien's lifelong editor and counsellor and friend, um, had drummed up commitment at Collins to a UK publishing deal for Master and Commander, partly based on the premise that Aubrey was going to be made commander of a third rate in the next novel, which is pretty prescient. <laughs> Although not completely prescient, he was also predicting to his colleagues at the publishing world that uh, Aubrey might get written into the Battle of Trafalgar and... Not, not too many spoilers here, Mike, but you and I know how that all turned out. <laughs> now, O'Brien had actually, at the time, had a, a little success with Master and Commander, but not as much as he had had with his translation of uh, Henri Charrier's action-packed memoir, Papillon. That's biographical memoir of a, of a French explorer. This Papillon book was quite racy by the standards of the day. It was earning him quite a nice royalty stream, in 1970. And meanwhile, the good folk at Collins, despite the sort of modest sales for Master and Commander, despite a few insipid early reviews alongside a few strong early reviews, they were now enthusiasts for Aubrey and Maturin. So with the encouragement of Collins and kept fiscally afloat by the royalties from Papillon, O'Brien found it possible to plunge back into this nautical historical world that he created. To quote Dean King, he had at last found the vernacular for his life's work. And in this new book, he decided to give Jack Aubrey and Stephen Maturin a fuller world. And I'm sure that's not the last we're going to hear from Dean King, but let's let's just enjoy the fact that we're back at the very, very beginning, almost the very beginning of O'Brien's journey with these characters. As Dean King says, he's created this world and we're going to extend it. Let's dive into the world. Let's see what's going to become of our two heroes and their friendship that we've talked about. Let's see which new places we're going to go to. Let's see which new characters we might encounter. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, we can hope for a little Austin-esque romance and intrigue and social satire along the way. Mike, Mike, would you set us up, would you? Where had we got to in Master and Commander? And where might we be headed this time? Oh, thanks. I'd be delighted to do that. So last time, last time for some of you was the end of Blue at the Mizzen. Last time, if we're kind of going sequentially in the in the chapter at a time, in Lover's Hole episode 99, we were in the final chapter of Master and Commander. We had Jack, Stephen, and the Sophies watching the English defeat at the first battle of Algeciras aboard Captain Christy Pallier's Dessay. And they saw the second battle of Algeciras, a British victory, as paroled prisoners high up on the rock of Gibraltar. Now, Jack and his men in the closing of Master and Commander were honorably acquitted for losing the Sophie, 
a verdict, which if you remember that, and Jack didn't hear or see because he cracked his head on the ceiling he's coming back in. <laughs> and yet, you know, he receives that sort. It's a great ending, but no setup for where we start this book. Mm-hmm. And you had pointed out in our short review of Master and Commander that there's some time that's evolved here between where yeah. we left our heroes and where we start now. Here we are, this time, chapter one of Post-Captain on our slow read. We kind of open it up on a new ship facing bad odds. We have in the chapter Life Ashore in Jane Austen country, as you say, Ian, we meet a new set of characters, explore some classical references, also a little bit kind of different or a little wider world here, and catch up with our heroes across masculine and feminine households. Oh, it's super exciting. Super exciting. Thank you, Mike. Now, we're bursting to hear about Aubrey and Maturin, about the Navy, but we open aboard HMS Charwell, commanded not by Jack Aubrey, but by a guy called Griffiths, who we'll come back to in a second. It's 1802, which, as you say, Mike, means that a bit of time has elapsed between the end of the last book and the beginning of this one. HMS Charwell has taken her first look at her chase this presumably enemy vessel that she's pursuing up the west coast of france up into towards the channel the chase turns and we see two rows of gun ports it's taken ages to get to this point they finally clear for action at six in the morning and both watchers from the charwell are standing on deck in the cold rain captain griffiths is weighing up this rather equivocal situation here charwell's a 32 gun 12 pounder frigate her weight of metal is a long way short of the weight of metal that could be flung by this line of battleship, this presumably French line of battleship. Her only possible bonus might be to get close enough to bring her carronades to bear, but even then she might not get that close before she's uh, before she's disabled. The Charwell could turn tail from this and run for it with some kind of honour if it wasn't for the fact that her consort, a frigate, a powerful 38-gun frigate with 18-pounders, a frigate called the D, could ever catch up. The D was behind them. It had lost a topmast in the last blow. The D was out of sight of the Charwell, hadn't responded to Captain Griffiths's last signal at nightfall the previous evening saying, General Chase. So here we are, Mike. We're not aboard Aubrey's ship. We're aboard someplace in the Navy and we can't see what's going on and we don't know which ships are which. It's quite a sort of disorienting opening. Let's do our usual thing and to quickly dip into the reality of the uh, the vessels that we're talking about here. Uh, HMS Charwell was a real ship. She was an 18-gun sloop. She'd been captured as the French vessel Aurore in 1799. Uh, she was eventually sold in 1813. Uh, Charwell, or Churwell as it's sometimes called, is the name of the river flowing through Oxford. And this Captain Griffiths, he's not the only Captain Griffiths in the canon by a long way, doesn't seem to relate to any particular historical character this this we get from a quick dip into the patrick o'brien muster book by the excellent anthony gary brown so here we go mike it's a very uncertain situation that we're in here it is it is and i I think griffiths is is kind of weighing it up he's thinking gosh these two ships although heavily outgunned possibly they they could fight this bigger french adversary it had been done before. The Indefatigable and the Amazon had destroyed a, a French 74 in 1797, but those two English ships carried 10 more long guns, and the sea had been too high for the Dois de l'Homme, 
to open her lower gun ports. So, you know, this is an action that we heard about or you will hear about in the Yellow Admiral. We won't talk about that more here. Griffins would have to cut the French ship off from Brest and fight her until the D comes up. But as they're looking back for the D through this black squall they're in the middle of, the D is hull up on the Charwell's leeward beam. So she's out there, but she's fished her main top mask and she's currently hauled to the wind. So no idea how long this is going to happen here. Hmm. Griffiths is alone on the quarterdeck. You know, he has to decide now what he's going to do. And whatever he decides now is going to set off a series of events that cannot be undone. So this is it. You know, you're in for a penny, in for a pound. But, you know, we'll get to that much later in the canon. (laughs) Uh, We just had that in blue at the mizzen. But the reason that this is so definitive is that they're going to be in range of this friendship in 10 minutes. So if he keeps coming up, the friendship's going to take them out, possibly. And he knows that the D is not a good sailor, especially in this wind and the turning tide, which is going to hold her back more. In a half hour, if it took her that long to come up, the French 36-pounders would rip the guts out of the Charwell. And he's wondering why in the world, this close to Brest, he hasn't seen any of the British blockading squadron and why the Frenchman is acting so odd. He feels the eyes of his officers on his back and the text says the eyes of his passengers. And Ian, like you mentioned earlier, I was completely at sea mentally, like, you know, the characters here were completely literally at sea here. I'm thinking, why are we on the Charwell? Who is this guy, Griffiths? But now we know why. Because there are passengers. Go. One is a fire-eating general pageant. One yeah. is Lucky Jack Aubrey. Ah, Yay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. Who Griffiths is remembered defeated the 36-gun Cacafuego with a 14-gun Sophie, an action that had been the talk of the fleet. So having this fire-eating general, this incredibly audacious master and commander behind him makes this decision much more difficult for Griffiths. Oh, boy. It's funny. There's the sort of implied contrast there as well that actually this is the kind of decision that Jack Aubrey wouldn't necessarily find difficult, but he wouldn't make a big deal out of it. He'd weigh up the odds and he'd make a decision. And it's a nice bit of characterization, like in in reverse, to to be reminded of what we know and think about Jack Aubrey. And um, we get to see just a little bit of his, his response. The text says here, Captain Aubrey was standing by the aftermost larboard carronade with a completely abstracted, non-committal look on his face. And he's watching this whole situation unfold. Dr. Maturin, we're told, is standing next to Jack, speaking eagerly in Latin with another passenger, a man completely in black, who, as the text says, might have had intelligence agent written on his narrow forehead, or just the word spy, there being so little room. Griffiths sends a furious glance in the direction of Stephen, and Jack suggests that Stephen should head below. He's talking about Stephen taking up his duties as surgeon, or at least assistant, to the Charwell surgeon. We'll come back to this conversation later on, and we might as well notice here that we hadn't heard about anything of the world of intelligence in Master and Commander, but now for the first time in Post-Captain, we do, in connection not with Stephen Maturin, but with somebody with whom Stephen Maturin is having a conversation. So, really interesting. This all gets resolved in any case, because Griffiths is about to tell a midshipman his intentions. He says, make a signal saying, I am about to, and he's cut off. When the Frenchman, 
fires a gun, and three blue lights followed by a succession of rockets. The lookout reports that a cutter is pulling from under the Frenchman's Lee, and I'm saying Frenchman with air quotes around it here. They close in with the cutter, an English cutter. Ah, they've not been pursuing an enemy after all. Jack thinks this is a smuggling craft. It's one that I, Jack Aubrey, would press half a dozen prime seamen out of if this was his ship. The master of the cutter comes aboard, wishes them joy of the peace that had been signed three days earlier. He brought copies at very reasonable rates, half a crown apiece, <laughs> of all of the newspapers from London, and he's selling these to all the foreign-going ships. A cheer spreads throughout the ship. The news travels, as O'Brien writes, a full-throated howl of joy, liberty, wives and sweethearts, safety, the delights of land. And Griffiths orders silence, but anyone looking into his eyes would see in their depths the signs of ecstasy. Griffiths might be without a ship in the peace, but now no one on God's earth, says O'Brien, could ever know what signal he had been about to make. And it's a really great turning on a sixpence what-if moment. Griffiths, we're clearly meant to believe Griffiths is a weak, vacillating self-regarding kind of a captain, but he gets spared from all of that by this shock announcement of peace. It's a great, great moment. Right. Nobody notices the stain on his pants leg. Well done. <laughs> oh, thank you for that, Mike. <laughs> right, right. Well, it's a great setup here, a great opening. So we, we turn now, we go to the wardroom, and, and Stephen is telling the ship's chaplain how charming it is to see how sensible the men have been about the blessings of peace. Well, the chaplain, who's thinking to himself that he's got no living to retire to, no private means, and knows that he's about to lose his job when the Charwell's paid off you know, as it reaches Portsmouth, walks out of the wardroom to pace on the deck in, in a thoughtful silence here. Stephen's a little chagrined. He turns to Jack and says, you know, I, I would have thought the chaplain would have shown more pleasure. And Jack, I, I love this line. Jack says to Stephen, it's an odd thing about you, Stephen. And it, the text says, Jack says, is looking at him with affection. You have been at sea quite some time now, and no one could call you a fool, but you have no more notion of a sailor's life than a babe unborn. Jack points out how glum everyone was at dinner, the dinner they just came from, and how blue all seamen look when there is, in Jack's words, any danger of peace. <laughs> I love that phrasing. Stephen says that Captain Griffin seemed like he was in a fine flow of spirits. And Jack says, well, that's rather different. And, and very diplomatically, he does not point out the situation that Griffiths yeah. was facing at the moment he heard the news. I think Jack's saving face for Griffiths here. And he says that for Griffiths, he doesn't have to be so worried. He's a post-captain. He'll have his 10 shillings a day. He'll continue to go up the captain's list. And even though he's quite old, at least 40, <laughs> he'll, uh. you know, he'll, with any luck, die an admiral. Right. Quite old. Jack says what he's sorry for is the lieutenants with their half pay and, and now little to no chance of a ship and the poor midshipmen with absolutely no hope of commission and no half pay. And he sings an old seaman's song about different ship's crew members' reaction to peace, including the surgeon, who the song says, as a gentleman, will go to some county fairs to set up Mountiebank. Or, or in other words, you know, they'll be relegated to selling quack medicines from a public platform in a public yeah. place. And, you know, in the song, it talks about the midshipmen who'll be reduced to shining shoes in St. James Park. 
<laughs> you know, I don't I don't know if we want to put out there's some great old naval albums out there, one of which has a rendition of this song. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, that's Jared. We can put it on our uh, YouTube playlist as well. We've got a playlist on YouTube for classical pieces, and we've got a playlist on YouTube for kind of fo- folky or associated pieces. So we can certainly add it in there. Anyway, music is not far from Jack and Stephen's mind either, as, as we're going to find out in a couple of seconds. Having described the situation of the different people and their different economic interests, Jack goes on to contrast the lieutenant and the midshipman's position with the position of Jack and Stephen themselves. Even though, he says, there's no great likelihood of a ship for him and no enemy to cruise against if they did have one, they've got their prize money that they're hoping to get resolution on very soon. Jack says he'd be very happy to take six months ashore to go hunting and to hear some decent music. And he says, ah, maybe the two of us could go to the opera in Vienna. And Mike, I, I, I went down a rabbit hole telling myself what was going on in Vienna in 1802. It's quite the time, for, to be honest, any time between about 1750 and 1914 is, is a great time to be in Vienna for classical music. But anyhow, in 1802, if they'd been to Vienna, they would have had Haydn composing his very final works. They would have had Beethoven just entering his great heroic period, you know, the Third Symphony onwards. They would have had Franz Schubert just about to enter the public eye. Karl Maria von Weber, German composer, not Austrian, but he was in Vienna for composition lessons at about that time. S- sign me up. I'll go on the Jack and Stephen music tour. No issues at all. Nice. Ugh. Anyway, Vienna is in a world where they're absolutely sure of six months worth of financial security and where they're absolutely sure of all of their prizes. They're not quite there yet, but they're feeling, regardless, like young men will in these kind of situations, pretty flush. They're reading through the newspapers that they've bought from these smugglers. And Jack tells Stephen about a fox hunt that he'd love to attend. And he notices this ad in the paper for a neat gentleman's residence for rent in uh, in Sussex. Stephen says, well, won't you be going to see your father in Woolhampton? He's talking about General Aubrey. And Jack says, yeah, I'll, I'll visit. But there's the matter of my father's new wife. This is the much younger former dairy maid who apparently knew Jack only too well. And we might come back in later times in the calendar here just how well, but Jack knows his stepmother quite well. He recalls what he calls a classical reference to a character who'd been in a similar situation. He wants to use this to pass on his idea to Stephen, but he doesn't quite land the reference. We, though, have got the leisure to dig around for what the reference might be, Mike, and what kind of digging did we have to do and what did we turn up? Well, it's really interesting, Ian. I mean, Jack reads off three names. Jack mentions Acteon, Ajax, Aristides, and he's thinking, no, 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 it's it's none of those. But but if you're thinking about this thing and and what may be the the case with Jack, O'Brien has a little clue in here. He talks about remembering this this dairymaid as a young woman with a moist palm. This is Jack remembering his recollection of her. And that may be O'Brien giving us a clue from Othello. In Othello, Othello chastises Desdemona for the moistness of her hand, which represents her sexual appetite. He calls it the presence of a young and sweating devil. 
So uh, no spoiler, but we will learn uh, more about Jack's relationship with his stepmother in the letter of Mark, sort of looking back. But Jack, probably all these, if you kind of think of the vowel sounds that they start about, you know, the most obvious character is probably Oedipus that has that similar vowel sound. But unlike Oedipus, Jack certainly didn't kill his father and sleep with his mother. So, but then again, that would be kind of par for the course with Jack and classical references. We know that he's never spot on. He's kind of in the general vicinity of here. But it's interesting. We've also read about, you know, them desiring going hunting here and this, you know, perhaps hunting that they could go back to if they were ashore here. And that brings up the story of Acteon which I think we should come back to later because it may be mm. foreshadowing some stuff here. It makes a lot of sense, but it's some stuff that's going to come at the end of this chapter and in the beginning of next chapter. So let's let's hold on to that. Now, some people think Jack could be referring to Hippolytus, whose stepmother fell in love with him and committed suicide after he rejected her advances and left a note saying that indeed Hippolytus had raped her. This father's curse then afterwards his curse on his son causes his son Hippolytus to fall from his chariot and be dragged to death by his horses, which also puts us in mind of, of, you know, kind of stick a pin in that too. So all kinds of possible openings up of this Easter egg here, some for now, some for later, lots of debate over the years over who this is, no resolution. I couldn't come to one either. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. This is going to be a book full of really fascinating Easter eggs and references and allusions for us to dig behind. And that's a really, real, real excellent example right away here in the first chapter. Now, Jack suggests that maybe he and Stephen could rent a place in the neighborhood of this neat gentleman's residence. He says there's plenty of hunting within reach. It's just a day's ride from London, so Jack can go and take care of Admiralty business. They could take Bondon and Killig and Lewis, who I think is it was a cook on the Sophie. Uh, and, and a few other old Sophies. And Stephen, on his, his side, is thinking about the possibilities for plants and beetles. And he says, quoting a, a line that has become a lover's whole tagline here, Mike, I should like it of all things. So we get very rapidly from being out at sea, Stephen and Jack, casting this plan to go and live a gentleman's life ashore for at least a little while. We get straight to a description of Paul Carey Downs. So this is in the Sussex Downs. This is a fox hunt. And to begin with, we don't know exactly who is here. What is this situation that we're reading about? This apparently was going to be in O'Brien's first draft, according to Dean King. In O'Brien's first draft of this book, this would have been the opening paragraph, this description of Paul Carey Downs. One of the gentlemen of the hunt, a Dr. Vining, is feeling guilty about not going and seeing his patient, Mrs. Williams, at Mapes Court. Mrs. Williams of Mapes Court. We'll remember her in a second. He knows there's nothing really wrong with her. His physic will do no good. And as he's thinking about this, he sees what he describes to himself as a very rum-looking cove, another medical man that he'd heard about. And we start to put two and two together here and guess who are the characters around Dr. Vining in this hunting party. This pale-faced, pale-eyed, even paler, close-cropped skull of this man. This man with his hat and his wig tied to his saddle, is sprawling on a mule, which is not a very noble hunting beast, but this guy doesn't seem to care, sprawling on a mule, calling out loudly to his companion. His companion is Jack, the new tenant of Melbury Lodge. 
Ah, okay. So it's Stephen Maturin on the mule here. Jack asks Stephen to tell him about whatever he's going to say later because the head of the hunt is complaining about Stephen perpetually interrupting. They catch the scent of the fox again. And another beautiful little bit of characterization in passing. Stephen's not really paying very much attention to the hunt. Looking for a fox, are they? said Stephen Maturin, as though hippogriffs were the more usual quarry in England. And Mike, there's another reference there for us to dig into if you want to, right? Well, I, I, I think, you know, there's just a little resonance for, for other Harry Potter fans like me out there going, hippogriffs, oh my gosh, hippogriffs. <laughs> so, hippogriffs in the canon, who knew? <laughs> I love hippogriffs. I love Harry Potter. I love horses. And, and O'Brien gets us right into it here. Jack had recently purchased a new hunter to carry what uh, O'Brien says is his 16 stone for... For those of us on the you know, this side of the Atlantic, like me, that's 224 pounds. And O'Brien says that like most geldings, this horse spends much of his time mourning his lost stones. A gelding is a castrated stallion. So for those of us who are not horse lovers, he describes the horse's many moods as if they're an inner dialogue. And the text says, too heavy, sits too far forward when we go over a fence. I've carried him far enough for one day. Shall have them off presently. See if I don't. Mm, I smell a mare. A mare. And I, <laughs> I just, you know, I, you know I, I, I think about our horses the same way all the time. And, and Annie and I are, are constantly giving them, you know, the outward dialogue for what we think they're thinking and, and everything. So this, this was great fun. And this, <laughs> this dialogue kind of continues a little bit, or at, at least, you know, we get right into what is this mare he smells? It's a chestnut mare. And it starts to caper and toss its head, kind of moving around, walking crabwise, when it sees Stephen's mule. There's a girl riding it. And the girl says, get over you. And in all of our written texts, it says, get over you. And it has a dash. Now, when Patrick Tall is narrating this, as, as I caught the other day, he says, get over you, bastard, says the girl. <laughs> now, it, it's it's a great thing. I, I, I love this. We'll talk more about it later. But uh, O'Brien says, Jack, having never heard a girl say that word before, whatever the dash is you're left to assume in the book, or I think Patrick Tall perhaps adds it, he turns to see her. She catches his eye and frowns. He turns away and, and, and kind of smiles to himself because she is so beautiful and graceful on her horse with her black hair, her blue eyes, and one perfect ear, which she's managed to kind of put her hat on and, and do her hair in a way that that perfect ear stands out and says the text, a certain ram you damn you air that was slightly comic and more than a little touching in so slim a creature. I'm thinking, oh, here's here's our introduction to a great character in the canon. Oh my gosh, right. love this. <laughs> I mean, we've talked a couple of times about the connection between Patrick O'Brien and romantic comedy. This is almost the meet cute, except that it's not because there is barely what? eye contact between Jack and this woman. There's no dialogue. He doesn't say a goofy remark. She doesn't have a sarcastic put down, except just possibly in her turning of her head away. So we've got a new character. We, we don't get her perspective. We just get this fleeting eye contact. But her sighting in the scene is absolutely one of, she's composed, she's on this chestnut mare, she's exuding confidence. And that's going to be an important bit of characterization right there. Anyhow, the fox, which turns out to be a vixen, 
as Stephen observes. This fox shows itself. And Mike, there's, there's already, you can see the symbolisms being built up here. Right after we meet a woman on a horse, Stephen points out that the fox is in fact a female. It's a vixen. And we know that O'Brien's used nature in the past as a, as a metaphor, as a signal, as a bit of foreshadowing as well. We remember Stephen and the female praying mantis in Master and Commander. Let's hang on to this, to use our favorite phrase, let's stick a pin in this and see if there's going to be any connection between Jack Aubrey, Stephen, and this vixen, this female character. Vixen, term often used to describe a spirited or a fierce woman, especially a sexually attractive one. So... No accident at all, I think, about the juxtaposition of fox hunting, a vixen, and this lady on the horse. We are probably all in our minds giving her her name, but we haven't heard it yet in the text. Right. Jack, Jack, meanwhile, stands up in his seat, hollers in a high seas roar, saying that he's seen the fox. And by the way, I don't know if you noticed, Mike, Stephen Maturin spotted the fox and gave a few beats for the fox to make its way across the field, thereby giving it a head start before he said, oh, look, there's the fox. which is absolutely Stephen to a T. Jack hollers that he's seen this fox. The horsemen come running. They're crowding at the gate. They're trying to avoid a devilish downhill leap right there by the gate. Now we get some action. More and more rapidly, we learn that this is a, this is a, a very fluid situation. Jack calls out for Stephen. He heads off to jump the fence as he sees the girl on the chestnut mare racing towards the same fence. Jack's horse lifts off. Jack turns in the saddle to ogle at the the pretty girl jumping over the fence entirely composed and entirely in control of her animal jack's gelding feels the change of balance and twists his shoulder and bucks as he lands and of course he manages to throw jack off jack slides down the shoulder of the horse he's holding onto the mane but 20 yards further on the saddle is empty jack's boot is wedged in the stirrup which sounds like a painfully bad outcome to me (laughs) He's jerking and thumping along this side of this running gelding. Jack is roaring. He's sweating horribly because the horse is about to run faster across the rock-strewn ground. Bystanders run to help Jack, but Stephen and his mule, having come through the gate, race to cut the gelding off, outrunning the men, standing in the gelding's way to take the shock of the collision. And with great presence of mind, Stephen jumps down off his mule, grabs the gelding's rein as the others run up to help. And this whole tense, difficult situation. By the way, Mike, I'm not an expert horse person, but this sounds like a very, very painful and injury-causing way to be thrown off a horse. But never mind. The farmer leads the horse away. It's shamefaced, says the text, while Stephen and the other men prop up what we believe are Jack's raw bones and bloody head as the mule walks along behind. So this is very far from the traditional rom-com encounter, right? It's funny. It's it's so far from the traditional rom-com encounter. It's certainly so far from the naval world that we've been living in. It's it's yeah. kind of, you know, this whole fresh start between the being thrown off on the charwell. All of a sudden, we're in the midst of a fox hunt here. It's, you know, I'm, I'm kind of trying to get my bearings a little bit, doing a little bit of dead reckoning. Maybe we should take a little break, serve out some grog, and come back to see where we go next. I can't wait. There's not a moment to lose. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole.
Welcome back. We hope you enjoyed your break. Mike, I was just reflecting on that scene in The Hunt at the very end of the first half of the chapter here. All of the men are screwing up, basically. Certainly all of the men in positions of authority and privilege. The hunters missed the fox. They only saw it when Stephen Maturin and Jack Aubrey pointed it out. Jack Aubrey, the naval commander, fell off his horse ignominiously. The male horse was shamefaced. The farmer had to come along and lead it away. The only person who emerged from that scene with any kind of composure really was the horsewoman, maybe with the assistance of Stephen and the mule. So we've had this nice little subversion already of the idea of men in charge and authority and all that stuff, which brings us to the thought of, well, what about women? We said right at the beginning that what we're looking forward to in this book is the potential for some female characters. And O'Brien gets us straight into the world of Mapes Court. This is the place that Dr. Vining in The Hunt, we remember, was going to visit. O'Brien is starting to fill in the detail for us on Mapes Court. He says it's an entirely feminine household. Its owner is this Mrs. Williams. She is so emphatically and totally a woman, says the text, that she was almost devoid of any private character. She's described as vulgar, although she's from a family that has some importance in the neighbourhood. It's hard to see any connection, any family likeness, as O'Brien calls it, between Mrs. Williams and her daughters and her niece. So we've got Mrs. Williams, we've got the daughters, and we've got the niece. We're going to learn about these female characters all as a piece here. The daughters, to begin with, had been brought up together with the same people in the same atmosphere, says O'Brien, of genteel money worship, position worship, and suffused indignation. An indignation that did not require any object for its existence, but that could always find one in a short space of time. And then the sentence goes on, but they were as different in their minds, these daughters, as they were in their looks. And Mike, I, I love this paragraph, not only because it's getting us into this female world that's going to be so important for the story, but it's an absolute note-perfect pastiche of Jane Austen. Genteel money worship, position worship, and suffused indignation is like the, the too-long-didn't-read summary of every Jane Austen book ever, <laughs> ever written. Nice. And there are several more that are coming here that are just a perfect Jane Austen tribute work writing. This is probably, you might say, the, the top Jane Austen tribute book without being outright fan fiction. And if, if any of you out there listening have a thought about that with us, there are probably some of you who are much deeply into your Jane Austen than we are. Let us know what you think. So, Mike, help us with the roster of the daughters here, because I have a feeling that the daughters are going to be important to the story. Well, well, it's interesting, Ian, you know, speaking of Jane Austen, we go, as I'm sure she would, from oldest to youngest because we to get them married off and we start in, with the in, oldest, right? In order of inheritance yeah. as well, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well done. Sophia, 27, the oldest, has gray eyes, a wonderful sweetness of expression and exquisite skin. She's reserved. Perhaps her mother's unprincipled rectitude, writes O'Brien, has given her an early disgust for adult life, this reservation here. She seems younger than her years, though. She seems to live, O'Brien tells us, in kind of an inward dream and has an ethereal quality, the quality of a sacrificial object. If a genea before the letter, O'Brien says, we'll come back to that. Her looks are very much admired. She speaks little in company, but does come out with these sudden darts of sharpness, showing much more intelligence and reflection than expected, given her upbringing, her education. And it's a part 
of an underlying strength that's not noticed by most of the men in her life. And O'Brien gives us a little clue about most of the men in her life, who he says are prating away happily with the conscious superiority of their sex. So O'Brien is, is drawing us very good masculine feminine <laughs> contrast here. And each person is given so much individual personality. So Iphigenia before the letter, and I'm thinking back here, wait a minute, wait, okay, before the letter, ah, there's so many tales from the yeah. Iliad onward about the Trojan War. There's so many plays. What you know, which letter is this and everything? So with a nod back to the Patrick O'Brien muster book and and a long time spent down rabbit holes of some of these plays <laughs> and critical letters here. I, I think we can come back to say at the beginning of the Trojan War, Agamemnon has angered the goddess Artemis, who is now requiring Agamemnon to sacrifice his virgin daughter, Iphigenia if he wants the wind back so he can sail his Greek fleet to Troy to start this whole saga going. Now, Agamemnon tricks his daughter into coming by sending a letter to her saying she is to be married to the hero Achilles. And so here we have this wonderful kind of innocent daughter. She gets this letter. She's coming to be married to the greatest Greek hero you know, of all time, if you will. But in fact, she's coming to be sacrificed to Artemis. So a couple of side notes here. And, and again, this is a little early, but you'll, you'll see where it plays out in a minute. Artemis, the Greek goddess, becomes Diana uh, in the Roman pantheon ah, here. Right. And so Sophia has some relationship to Artemis or Diana. We'll talk more about that later. I wonder if they play out anything like the Artemis-Diana and Iphigenia, who we've already kind of related to be Sophia in the canon. Side note two, the goddess Artemis, which we've just talked about, also figures in the story of Acteon, one of the classical figures that Jack mistakenly named earlier, but O'Brien has stuck in our mind for later reference here. So that's Sophia in you want to take us yeah. on to the next oldest daughter here? I'd love to. I'll, I'll just also say in passing that classical references, this is not taken directly from the Iliad, I don't think, but Iliad is the work in the back of the no, mind no, for no. lots of, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, the Iliad actually kind of steps right over the whole sacrifice thing. Exactly. And <laughs> as you follow the history of this in, in Greek drama and poetry and writings and stuff, we get eventually to the sacrifice, and then we get revised outcomes coming years later as if, is she actually dead? Is she dead? So fascinating story. If, if you really want to dig down this, this Easter egg, this rabbit hole, by all means, go. And with reference <laughs> to the letter, there's this one. And then in the way at the end of, of this revisionist history, there's a letter that she's writing to her brother, after Iphigenia has has actually not been sacrificed, the Artemis right. has done this whole other thing and put a stag in its place, and and she's now living with the, the Turins. Fascinating. Thank you. I mean, what can you do? You can either read O'Brien and like in, inhale the classical references that go past, or you could spend an entire lifetime reading classical literature, and you get. Right. Huh, I, I know which one I'm going to try. Anyhow, second daughter down then is Cecilia. She's more like her mother, we learn. She's devoted to personal 
ornamentation. She likes crimping her yellow hair. She's shallow. She's foolish. By the way, I, I'm sure it's not a coincidence that her hair is described as yellow and not blonde. Like that's a, a disagreeable version of that kind of color hair. She's almost simple, but unlike her mother, she's inclined to be cheerful. She's not ill-natured. She's just a little bit of a kind of pinhead. She loves the company of men of any size and shape. Now, next daughter down again is Frances, the youngest. Absolutely does not like men. She'd rather throw stones at squirrels. She is entrancing, and she's described as having Diana's dark hair and blue eyes, but is as unlike her sister's as though they belong to another sex. However, as the text says, the three shared a good deal of gaiety, splendid health, and £10,000 apiece, which is a cracking Jane Austen tribute joke. <laughs> yes. Oh. And to, to round out the, Austen, the, the Austenite context here, none of them were married, even though Mrs. Williams had this on her mind most of the time. There were very few eligible bachelors around this part of the of England because of the war. Sophia had apparently had some interest, but she was reluctant and had turned down several offers. Mrs. Williams, on her part, was very eager for a good marriage settlement, and few of the gentlemen locally liked the idea of having Mrs. Williams for a mother-in-law. And, and, I, and I love this little line here about Mrs. Williams from the text. Whether Mrs. Williams liked her daughters at all was doubtful. She loved them, of course, and she, in quotes, sacrificed everything for them. But there was not much room in her composition for liking. It was too much taken up with being right. And there's this great line, Hast thou considered my servant, Mrs. Williams, that there is none like her in the earth, a perfect and an upright woman? So Mrs. Williams, we learn, did love the interest of her daughters. She would fight like a tiger for an adequate provision in a, in a marriage contract. But... She had a good way of dampening their enthusiasm and even spoiled their birthdays. And Mike, I was really fascinated to just quickly search for this thing about hast thou considered my servant, Mrs. Williams? That's the book of Job, right? Oh, absolutely. And, and, and you know, for those of us who are coming to this from Blue at the Mizzen, we're right back. I mean, we were just nailing the book of Job. We're right here. This is This is God's asking Satan at the very opening of the book of Job, have, have you considered my servant Job, who is this, you know, is, is kind of uh, perfect, upright and everything. So here we are. I, it made me scratch my head and wonder, how many references does O'Brien have to Job in the yeah. canon? And I know there are two, 13 Gun Salute and Blue at the Mizzen, that are very clear that they're talking about Job. But I suspect yep. there are many more like this one where there are these little kind, kind of, of Easter egg references in phrases. Snuck it in. Yeah. Mrs. Williams attributed her daughters not being married to their cousin, ah, Diana Villiers. Now, now this whole Artemis Diana thing. So we're like, ah, okay, there is a Diana here. She is, the text says, as good looking in her way as Sophia. But Diana and Sophie are very different. Diana seems to be very tall, always, you know, walking with her straight back and her head held high, but she actually only comes up to Sophie's ear. Hmm. They both have a natural grace, but Sophie's is pleasant, slow, kind of a perfect flow of movement, while Diana's, the text says, has a quick flashing rhythm. She's a superb dancer. And O'Brien tells us that by candlelight, Diana's complexion is almost as good 
as Sophie's by candlelight. We know that really fabulous, fabulous descriptions here. But Diana had grown up completely differently than Sophie. They both had been born the same year, but at 15, after her mother's death, Diana had been sent off to India to keep house for her, what the text says, expensive, rafish father. Um, she ended up marrying his handsome, yet at that point, penniless aide-de-camp, and they continued to live together in her father's palace. Brian tells us that both Diana and her husband were passionate, strong-willed, and too opposed in every way to do anything but tear each other to pieces. However, he could have come into a fortune. He was only one sickly life away from a great estate, and he was very intelligent, cultivated, unscrupulous, and very active, especially politically. So he was, O'Brien tells us, likely to have been wealthy by 30, but both he and Diana's father died in the same battle, both of them deeply in debt, despite everything that they had. And the company had sent Diana home with 50 pounds a year until she remarried. And that's when she came to live with her cousins in the Williams household. So a big difference here. Right. And and by the way, the each of the uh, Williams girls has a dowry of £10,000, which means if, if it were their own and they were making 5% on it, they'd be on £500 a year of, of private income. So Diana is a relative pauper compared to the Williams girls. And £50 is, is a grand. It's not an actual asset. She hasn't got solid private means. She's just being kept afloat by the East India Company. So... Diana realized pretty quickly, because she's a very savvy kind of a young lady, that her aunt did not want her, to use a cricket phrase, queering her daughter's pitch, and had therefore tried her best, her Diana, just to fit nicely into the slow world of the English countryside with its fixed notions and its strange morality. Mrs. Williams was pretty much afraid of Diana, regarded her with suspicion, didn't want to push her too far but was always keen to get some kind of moral advantage, somehow always managed, as O'Brien says, to plant her needle where it hurt most. And in return, Diana had been somewhat secretly riding with hounds for a number of years. She enjoyed hunting. She enjoyed the company of men. And I think that the idea of an unmarried woman out there in mixed male society doing something barbarous like hunting would just just put Mrs. Williams into a complete tizzy here. Diana's trying to stay below the radar here, but she knows that she outrages Mrs. Williams a little bit in outraging not only Mrs. Williams, but the daughters. As she's coming in from riding on this particular morning, Diana looks at herself in a mirror and says, thou lookst like Antichrist in that lewd hat. And Cecilia goes for the moral outrage. This is a shocking, blasphemous thing to say. And she threatens to tell her mother, Mrs. Williams. Diana says, don't be a fool. It's literature from the Bible. And, and Mike, since we've been in the book of Job, right, that this this must be more Bible or or is it now? Well, it, it's funny. I kept thinking, I don't remember anything like that from the Bible. That makes no sense to me. I kind of did a quick scan through there and I thought, no, nah, no, nah, nothing like that. I mean, a lewd hat. I don't think so. But uh, it actually turns out it's from the playwright Ben Johnson from his play The Alchemist, written in 1610, Act 4, Scene 7. 
and and in true O'Brien fashion, speaking, you know, not only is Dinah saying this is literature and actually is literature from the Bible. Well, the part of the play that this comes from, it's words spoken by Puritans. Johnson is doing a satire on all kinds of people here. And here there's a satire on religion in the form of these Puritans whose hypocrisy has them looking down on all other people as heathens, while they themselves are involved with these other people as part of their own money-hungry scheme to counterfeit Dutch currency. So it's it's a great, it's another great one to, to chase down and find out here. So I love that. Fantastic. Well, Cecilia says, you know, you upset me so much, I almost forgot to tell you the news. And she tells Diana that their neighbor, the Admiral, is back and coming to visit this afternoon. And Cecilia is so excited because she says the Admiral can tell them all about these beautiful young men. Well, Admiral Haddock, you have to love the name, right? Yeah. Uh, The text says, is only a yellow Admiral, retired without hoisting his flag, and he had not been afloat since 1794. And, and Ian, I had forgotten that we were introduced to this concept of yellow admirals this early in the canon. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, we actually will. Yeah, it is. We won't see that phrase again until blue at the mizzen. But here it is. I think either O'Brien playing the long, long, long game, you know, for those of you even just looking at the names of the books in the canon, the Yellow Admiral, one of the books in the canon. I guess we see it there as well. But this the way they the concept here. Okay, so he's not much in our minds, perhaps, of a naval authority. But he's the only naval authority that Mapes Court has. And and they are, as Stephen Matron would say, with child to learn about Captain Aubrey in the Navy, who's taken, you know, is renting Melbury Lodge and is now what they call in their sphere of influence. But they, because Aubrey is a bachelor, cannot call upon them until they're introduced. So the Admiral can perform a great function for them here, not only intelligence gathering, but also yeah. an introduction. <laughs> now, at tea, and by the way, we're, we're, get, we're getting into so- social eating and drinking here, which is going to be important, right? At tea, Mrs. Williams asks Admiral Haddock about Captain Aubrey. And, and again, like O'Brien loves to do, we get people's character and backstory, the, the story so far stuff, the exposition, dealt with in passing via a secondary character. So Haddock does the business for us. He explains that Aubrey is a young master and commander. And Mrs. Williams clutches her beads and says, ah, you mean he's only pretending to be a captain? So she has to get the Admiral's explanation of how sailing master, master and commander ranked uh, officers are called captain out of courtesy. Oh, indeed, she says, trying to look wise. And the Admiral then goes on and tells how well this particular commander had done in his cruises, how he'd earned the nickname Lucky Jack, all this prize money that he'd cleared in. And I can hear Mrs. Williams nodding already at the idea of prize money. He praises the Cacafuego action, which the ladies had never heard of, and explains that despite it being such a great action, on a technicality, he had not been made post-captain, not been given command of Cacafuego and not been knighted. And because of wheels within wheels, which he says, and you can almost hear his finger tapping the side of his nose here, because of wheels within wheels, because of an explanation that was not suitable for the ears of young ladies, this Cacafuego was not going to be brought into the service and he was not given his step. Now, we'll come back in a moment 
to what he might mean by that and what the what the girls think of this but he goes on and adds a bit more color i think he's trying to be helpful and conversational but i think he's just bewildering mrs williams and the girls here about whether aubrey is husband material or not he goes on to say well he may never get his step he may never be made post because his father is a ranting dog of a tory the admiral says that captain aubrey may not be quite the thing but he haddock intends to call upon Aubrey the next day to mark his own sense of the action and the the injustice of Jack not getting recognition here. So Cecilia then asks, on behalf of all of us, I guess, Mike, what does he mean with not quite the thing? The Admiral says he may be dashing, but there are complaints that he lacks discipline. He's independent. He doesn't follow orders. And the Admiral says the text reports, and that I fear he may not attend the fifth commandment quite as he should. O'Brien writes, the girls' faces took on an inward look as they privately ran over the Decalogue. In order of intelligence, a little frown appeared on each as its owner reached the part about Sunday traveling and then cleared as they carried on to the commandment the admiral had certainly intended. Oh, everyone was like, oh, 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 infidelity here. <laughs> so, well, he says there was a great deal of talk about a superior officer's wife that was at the bottom of all this, of, of Jack not getting his step, of the Caca Fuego not being bought and everything. The captain says he appears to be a sad rake and undisciplined, which is even worse, Hermione, we could die or even worse, get expelled, right? (laughs) So a sad rake and undisciplined, and the first Lord of the Admiralty will not brook undisciplined conduct. So we're, Mm. you know, you were talking about in this tension ratcheting up and, you know, what's going to be going forward here. So, but Mrs. Williams seems to have other interests that she wants to explore here. She really does. And by the way, this idea of the uh, Admiral of the Fleet having a tough sense of discipline, we got that right at the beginning. There was that little episode aboard the Charwell where Captain Griffith says, take your hat right off. Lord St. Vincent has has said it must be so. So it's a very two very, very little subtle signals that the Navy is heading in an authoritarian direction. You might say in a Whiggish direction, and Jack Aubrey might be on the wrong side of all of that. Anyhow, back to the Williamses and their exploration of Aubrey's character. Mrs. Williams says, tell me more about the father, because she knows that anybody standing in the community, anybody's worth as a person, is defined by their family and their breeding. So the Admiral says, well, General Aubrey made a din by flogging the Whig candidate in the parliamentary election. And I, I love this line here. Again, very Austin-like. Mrs. Williams says, he must be a man of considerable estate to flog a member of parliament <laughs> is the captain his only son <laughs> which is just excellent um the admiral just goes straight past it here he says the captain captain aubrey has a new mother-in-law and we'd heard about this already this fine sprightly woman from the village and since the general cannot be more than 65 then if he were in captain aubrey's shoes He'd be uneasy. He means about Jack's inheritance. If there's another child, then maybe Jack won't inherit the whole estate, might not even inherit at all. Mrs. Williams thinks this is a terrible emotional tragedy and says she quite feels for the poor young man. And then she goes on and asks about Captain Aubrey's particular friend. More exposition of our characters here, thanks to the side conversations of secondary characters. Captain Aubrey's surgeon, here we are talking about Macturin, is the person that had been aboard the sloop with him. 
Haddock thinks that he's heard that he's someone's natural son. And besides naming him as Maturin, that, that also earns him a little interruption here from Francis, who says, what's a natural son? And a, this very awkward little not in front of the children moment as Admiral Haddock realizes he's going to step too far. The Admiral says, nothing. He just looks from side to side and uh, and she asks, are sons more natural than daughters, pray? And Mrs. Williams says, shush, 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 you know. We don't want to go into that conversation in a polite drawing room. Cecilia has her own piece of the story to fill in. She reports that their neighbour, Mr. Lever, had called at Melbury, where Jack and Stephen are, uh, are living for now, and says that Dr. Maturin is quite strange, like a foreign gentleman. He was cutting up a horse in the winter drawing room. Uh, Mrs. Williams, once again, completely cloth ear for what this might mean for the character. She gets straight into the domestic side of things. She says, we should tell them to use cold water to get rid of blood. And the Admiral says, well, I think you'll find that sailors from ships in the Navy are quite good at getting rid of blood stains." So, (laughs) again, I think Admiral Haddock is trying to be helpful, but really he's painting this very bewildering picture for the Williams girls of these two men and, and their potentialities, Mike. Yeah, and it, it, it's funny because he's. I think he's trying to to backpedal a little bit here to sort of you know backstroke, backstroke. Let me get myself out of there. And then he says, "Well, you know, it's a capital thing to have a couple of sailors with pockets full of money land on their doorstep." Tech says, "Anyone in want of a husband has but to whistle, and they'll come running." Ha ha ha! And the women, he looks around, do not respond or look happy. And the admiral wonders at the sudden chill in the room. And again, he's now trying to dig himself out of this. And he says that he now recollects that, uh, anyways, it's it's all a no-go. That the captain, Captain Aubrey, had told Trimble, who had suggested a match with his sister-in-law, that he'd quite given up on women. The Admiral says, perhaps he's realized how unlucky he really is with this wretched business of promotion, a couple of neutral prizes tied up in the Admiralty Court on appeal. The text says, so, this is the words of the Admiral, he has very rightly given up all thoughts of marriage in which luck is everything, has quite given up on women. Uh, it's funny, Mike, when you and I were talking about this before, when you and I first read this sentence in our first reading of the book, we thought in that moment that having given up on women was a reference to Stephen, since we'd heard a bit about Stephen's backstory of having been in love and then the relationship having broken down and he was kind of an unrequited romantic. But no, this is not Stephen who's given up on women. It's Jack. Now, I, you you can ask yourself the question and probably give yourself a quick answer. How long in the canon do you think Jack is going to remain in the situation of having given up on women? I, I think you count it in paragraphs rather than books. Right. But anyhow, he's, Admiral Haddock here is telling the story of how Jack had been in this uh, romantic situation and that it had not ended well and that he was, as a result, sticking with male society for now. Now, Cecilia says, hold on a second, neighbours of ours who can see right into Melbury have told us that there's not a single woman in the place kind of confirming Admiral Haddock's point here that they've given up on female society and that Stephen and Jack are looked after by a parcel of sailors. Yet even so, she says, the windows shine like diamonds. The doors are all newly painted white. Mrs. Williams says, how on earth can they hope to manage? She's got a very low opinion of the domestic capabilities of men. She says, 
I'd wipe my chair with a handkerchief if I sat down there. And the Admiral kind of demurs a little bit, says, well, we managed pretty well at sea. Oh, at sea, Mrs. Williams says with a smile. And the girls laugh to themselves about the idea of a man darning a sock. And Diana mentions the things that they can probably cook, like eggs and bacon and beefsteak. But, cried Cecilia, how wonderfully strange, how romantic, as good as a ruin. Oh, how I long to see him. End of chapter one. So, Mike, despite the bewildering, pot-stirring descriptions of Admiral Haddock, the girls, or at least Cecilia, are pretty keen by the sound of it. They they are. And I'm, I'm with her. Oh, how I long to see them too. Yeah. <laughs> so we had a lot of the, the second half of the chapter is all the Williams, but a delightful chapter. And, and as we kind of said earlier, what a change from master and commander, particularly in terms of women and domestic life ashore. Love it. It's great. A great chapter though, Mike, right? I mean, it's, it's really fun to get all the way back to the beginning of the canon again and to get into the beginning of the character arcs of these people. It's like, like getting back into a warm bath. Yeah, so true. As, as we'd said earlier, I, I was a bit disoriented when the chapter started, but as, as you know, and it made sense to me, you know, when, when Dean King's biography had said that actually the start was at Paul Carey down and for whatever reason, they decided, no, 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 we need a nautical transition into this, given what the whole chapter is going to be about. So we get the whole Charwell episode here. It's um, it, it, it's fun as well that we're getting into the land-born society. We had relatively little of this, and, and we started to get the, the world by land, the world in time of peace and the world with women in it. So there's been lots of work for O'Brien to do to introduce us to, to these new characters. So, Mike, I, I love the job that O'Brien is doing here, introducing us to all these new characters, adding in some important backstory besides what we already remember from Master of Commander, giving us just enough of the plot to, to, to kind of get into the experience, not just to hear about the characters. And as we've said a few times now, it's definitely a Jane Austen tribute band that we've started out with here. But, but better than that, because we've got all this interesting characterization as we've said, it would be really interesting to talk with somebody who really, really knows about Jane Austen and her works to do a bit of compare and contrast. We might come back to that idea. We do know that O'Brien really admired Jane Austen's writing. And uh, there was one of O'Brien's American Q&A sessions on one of his tours when, of, of all the things that he would be willing to accept questions on, the only thing at this particular occasion was questions on Jane Austen. So he admired Jane Austen and to put a different spin on it, he considered himself an authority on Jane Austen. <laughs> so here we go. He's flexing his Jane Austen chops here for sure. Yeah. Well, Ian, one thing, I always hope that some readers are on their first reading of the canon and that they've yeah. followed along the slow read of Master Commander. They're now at Post Captain. But I know that many of our listeners are in the midst of a circumnavigation. And for, for new O'Brien readers, a circumnavigation in, in this context is when we've read all, all the books and, and we're now coming back and starting over again. And I'm certainly having that circumnavigation thrill here back at Post Captain. You know, you know, I, I love the delights of revisiting favorite scenes and characters, you know, of always discovering something new or forgotten saying to myself, oh, wow, there's a theme that I know runs through the canon, but I really hadn't picked up on that quite before. Or uh, being amazed how O'Brien sets stuff up so far ahead in the series that pays off later, like the Yellow Admiral comment yeah. here. 
And the other thing is the way that things you know, always strike me differently given what's happening in my own life, you know? Yeah. So the way in which it affects me, the way in which I, I relate to the writing and the insights that O'Brien stirs up within us here. You know, I remember having so many of these same feelings when we stopped and went back and did the slow read through Master and Commander. It's, it's just a delight to be doing that again with post-captain here. It's great. And it, of course, as we, we've said this many times before, that's the hallmark of the greatness of the writing, that it reflects back what, what we're all bringing to it in our lives. Oh, I, I like as well, as a Brit, that we're getting some British context here. We've had qu quotes of Ben Johnson. We've had writing very, very solidly in the style of Jane Austen. We've got the social and political scene. We've got Whigs and Tories, and we've got landed gentry, and we've got vicars, and we've got hunting. For all we've spent time in the Mediterranean, for all we've spent time with the, the male society of the Royal Navy, now here we are, we're getting very English, very English in the context, very English and British in the references. And I'm, I'm really enjoying that. Um, O'Brien is also flexing his knowledge of all those different cultural dimensions and all the literature and all the references as well. Now, going back to the plot for a minute, clearly among the Williams daughters, we have a bit of competition going on, clearly between the Williams daughters and Diana. Their cousin, we have some competition. Competition in life, but most especially competition in the marriage marketplace. And it's interesting to wonder what Jack and Stephen's interest might be in these ladies. We've had a lot about how having two men in the parish is a big deal for the ladies. We haven't heard very much about how big of a deal it is to the men that the ladies are on the scene. We hear secondhand that Jack has given up on the fairer sex, at least for a few paragraphs. I'm, I'm not buying it, really. <laughs> Maybe. It, it would take much more than, I don't know. It, to, let, let's let's give a minor spoiler here and say it's going to take more than 20 books of the O'Brien canon for Jack Aubrey to give up on women altogether and forever. It's it's really interesting that we're enjoying post-Captain. We're wondering what's coming next. I'd love to hear what happens when all these people get together socially. So, Mike, what do you say to just a little bit more Patrick O'Brien next week? And any advice from Stephen Maturin at all? Yeah, I think you're right again. Stephen said it best. I should like it of all things. ships carried 10 more long guns and the sea had been too high for the all right sorry so the dwada um dwa, no dwada dwada um now dwada lom it's got a look dwada lom thank you lom lom <laughs> god sam I'm bless sorry, you for Mike. putting up with me week after week no ian ian that's that's my other issue is is that i can't and i put in the dictionary when it says say it this way that makes no sense to me either, for some reason. I think I just never learned to read phonetically. That's all right. <laughs> so the Dwadalom, no.